1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered
2: today. Ultimate challenge is to ensure that by our response, say for example the Russian's do escalate and use the tactical nuclear weapons, that we not raise the risk there will be nuclear escalation that arises from that. That could lead to obviously a world war or nuclear annihilation. That's the number one challenge. But ensure that whatever uh, response that the United States and its allies imposes on the Russians ensures that Putin doesn't get away with nuclear blackmail, which is essentially what he's doing.
0: <laughs> Ralph moat larsen is a former senior CIA operations officer who spent much of his career working on Russia. Ralph now serves as the William J. Perry Distinguished Fellow at the Nuclear Threat Initiative and as a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Ralph has been on our show before to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and he joins us today to provide an update at a critical moment in the war. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
2: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
0: Rolf, it is great to have you back on Intelligence Matters. You've become really our go-to expert for the Russia-Ukraine war, and we really appreciate you taking time again to spend with us to talk about it. Rolf, since we had you on the show last, you joined the Nuclear Threat Initiative as the William J. Perry Distinguished Fellow there. That's a real honor, so congratulations on that. Could you just let our listeners know what the Nuclear Threat Initiative does, what's its mission? Yes,
2: Michael, and thanks for having me back. The Nuclear Threat Initiative is a nonprofit located in Washington, D.C., but with global connections that works on making the world a safer place. And the principal subjects we focus on are the threat of nuclear weapons, in other words, nuclear deterrence and nuclear risks, global nuclear order, and uh, even more recently, you know, an emphasis on on bio threats, looking at existential risks of the twenty first century. So it's an organization that's trying to do some real serious thinking and work with other people who have good ideas on how to how to actually implement ideas that will, we can say, will tangibly make the world a little bit safer than it is. And we all know that's something that's sorely needed.
0: That's terrific. Okay, so Rolf, let's jump into the latest on Russia-Ukraine lot to talk about given everything that's happened in the last month i don't think we could have had you on the show again at a better time let's start on the battlefield how has the situation changed over the last month and why and where do things stand on the battlefield today just to give folks you know kind of a starting point
2: yeah michael i think we are seeing a situation that has strategically settled It's not the frozen war that many people thought it would be. It's very dynamic. I think the strategic sort of guidelines are set, meaning the Russian army has failed miserably on the ground, isn't likely to reconstitute itself. To be able to regain the initiative, the offensive, even with this mobilization order that Putin called, that's really just a call. (laughs) It's going to be very difficult to implement and won't have any impact, even if he does manage to implement it effectively for many, many months. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians are very much on the offensive. Their counteroffenses continue. They're taking ground even the air in the areas that uh, Vladimir Putin claimed he's annexed into Russia, which means that claim of annexation doesn't really match the situation on the ground. and we can expect the Ukrainians over the next several weeks and months to continue to take towns, villages, cities and territory back from the Russians. And then on top of that, we've got you a know, NATO that remains as unified as ever, even as we're heading into what will be a difficult winter energy-wise for many European countries. And the Ukrainian army is uh, strong, but not strong enough that in the foreseeable future, it can mount a strategic offensive to, say, retake all of its territories. That's That remains a long-term objective of the Ukrainians but is is not going to be achievable militarily speaking any time in the next several months in all likelihood. So that's the general situation on the ground, which I think Vladimir Putin probably understands, which is why he made this political speech in the last week to set new conditions to try to regain control of this war he he initiated, which is to say he's essentially said, I'm not giving this territory back no matter what. It's part of Russia now and Ukraine's only option is to negotiate. But in conclusion of this or this first assessment of the situation, the Ukrainians of course have no interest, I wouldn't, if I were them, have any interest in negotiating with the Russians while they're winning on the ground and are likely to win if this if this war continues over the next months or even potentially years.
0: So Ralph, is Putin's goal here now to kind of freeze where we are in the ground with negotiations and live to fight another day? Is that what he wants at the moment?
2: I think when the war began, of course, we all know he had much greater ambitions. This is, in fact, setting a new set of conditions for what he would term a win, meaning exactly what you just said. He wants to now drive negotiations. I think there are a number of Russians in various channels trying to communicate to the United States and other Western countries that it's time for the Ukrainians to come to the table. I don't think the Ukrainians probably feel that way because Putin has really no other options if he can't win the war on the ground. In other words, if he can't somehow bring the, resuscitate his army, what other option does he have other than settle for the four regions they call, they're called oblasts, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk, and Donetsk? If he, he would be happy to settle for absorbing these this part of Ukraine into Russia with some sort of a say, ceasefire, followed by negotiations at which will, the starting point would be in Ukraine would somehow be neutral, somehow agree to disarm, and he would keep that territory. I think that's a highly unlikely outcome to the war. And that, of course, raises the risks that in the next weeks and months, we're going to, going to see another form of escalation to this war as Putin realizes he won't get what he wants.
0: And back in Russia, there's some significant developments as a result of what's happened on the battlefield, you know, critiques of him by some of the people who have supported him the longest, you know, the partial mobilization that you talked about, and the public's response to that, right, which has been which has been sharp. So how does how does Putin think about his own politics in Russia right now? How's that changed for him?
2: Well, he's putting on a brave front. We, we're seeing the celebrations in the, in the Kremlin, and he's calling all his key senior leaders to where he announces the annexation, and they're all clapping wildly. I think they're all, they're all not that delusional. They understand that saying something is, is, is part of Russia doesn't make it so. And just like the war between the two armies the longer the situation drags on the more likely that it settles into a the winner of an insurgency of constant you know knife cuts that ukraine would impose on and br- taking back russian territory that they've stolen and in fact the situation continues to deteriorate for him so i think the the military bloggers and other people understand what's actually happening are calling that out which is kind of remarkable when you think about it that uh, military bloggers who are themselves former retired army officers intelligence officers who have been very actively criticizing the russian army and now they're beginning to more vocally criticize putin's own actions including this annexation which they recognize is a sham it's not just the West that realizes there was no real vote. There was no real choice by the, by the citizens to be absorbed into Russia. They were impressed. They were, they were enslaved into Russia. And there would be no basis in international law to do any of this. And then people understand that. But the worst situation for Russia itself, even if one believes in Russia that Ukraine is somehow part of Russia and there's some legitimacy to this, which again, I stress there's not, that the facts on the ground suggest otherwise. The Ukrainians are taking territory, as we speak, in those areas. Uh, none of them were completely taken over by the Russian army, occupied by the Russian army. And, and there's going to be a contested struggle over the next weeks and months for that territory.
0: So, Rolf, as you said, President Zelensky's response to the annexation has been to harden Ukraine's position, right? He's asked for accelerated NATO membership for Ukraine. He said that Ukraine will only negotiate with the Russian government, not led by Putin. So essentially, calling for re- for regime change in Russia. You talked about Putin's got to got to do something here to change the equation. What are his options for trying to do that?
2: And to put a a fine point on in your assessment, which I completely agree with Michael, uh, Zelensky also understands that if the West tries to pressure Ukraine to go to the negotiating table to settle on some basis of where we are right now, it's capitulation for Ukraine. He's in no mood to do that. They fought too hard. They've lost too much. So that means that he's likely to continue to defy Putin by continuing his attacks and intensifying the battle on the ground. So that puts Vladimir Putin in a very bad position, because if that's successful, his options are also dwindling. And that's where we get into the potential that he might escalate or try to compensate for the fact that the Russian army is so weak and is likely to remain weak, to compensate by using more strategic weapons, including the possibility, for example, of uh, uh, striking Ukraine with tactical nuclear weapons.
0: So let's dig into that. Everybody's talking about it. Are his threats to use tactical nuclear weapons a bluff or are they real? How do we how do we have to think about this?
2: It would be terribly irresponsible, Michael, if anyone, any western leader thought of these threats as being bluster or saber rattling or empty. I'm and I'm quite certain that all the western leadership based on at least the people I know and things I hear are taking the threats very seriously. There's no military reason for Vladimir Putin to do this. In other words, he can't use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield to win a war. He can't win with an army. Nuclear weapons don't take territories. They don't hold territories. It is a way to try to strike back at an enemy you can't stop with an asymmetric weapon of mass destruction. That's the danger. So as the Russian army weakens and the Ukrainian army strengthens, and the situation becomes bad for Russia because the Ukrainians refuse to negotiate and, and agree to a ceasefire, then the risks are rising that Putin may see using tactical nuclear weapons as his only good option. And that's why we started the war all believing, and I think our reasoning was sound, that there was a very low probability that Putin would use these weapons because the Russian army was strong, the Ukrainians were weak, he wouldn't need them. Now, seven months into the war, the situation is reversed as to what we thought we, where we would be, and now it suddenly looks as if he may feel, and I believe it's a horrifically misguided judgment if he comes to it, that somehow he'll be advantaged if he uses these weapons.
0: Do you think in his mind that if he continues to lose on the battlefield— his political situation at home would get worse and worse and worse and maybe become existential for him. And that's why he would need to to try to do anything to kind of freeze the situation on the ground there and at least be able to claim some sort of victory and live to fight another day. Is that is that the idea here of what he would gain from this?
2: I believe that's part of his calculation. No person, no leader in the world of an authoritarian country is ever completely safe from other authoritarian-minded people in that system. That's one of the dangers of running an autocracy, is that there's always someone from within who might decide you're more trouble than you're worth, and that might even apply to Vladimir Putin at some point in this war. And so he's certainly aware of it. That's one reason he has no succession plan. It's a reason why he limits those who are around him to a very, very small select of totally trusted people, because he's aware. He wants to minimize the possibilities that he could be deposed in any way, which, by the way, if you look back at Russian history, Soviet history, all the way back to the Bolshevik Revolution, there are many examples of how Soviet leaders were gone essentially in a day, uh, or at least attempts against them, uh, even in recent years, for example, against President Yeltsin and against uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, there were coup attempts to topple them. So Putin's very well aware of the history. So yes, he he needs to keep the support of the very few people in his power base, the head of the Russian intelligence, the head of the military, a few others only, handful of people perhaps, that he needs their completely loyal support. Or even he could potentially face scrutiny, and ultimately that leads to a change for in within Russia, by the Russians, by the way. Uh, as we talked about at a previous podcast, Michael, the West, the United States, should have absolutely no influence or make any efforts whatsoever to influence who leads russia that's a decision for the russian people
0: alone so is the idea here the use of these weapons on the battlefield is it to use one to sort of intimidate ukraine and the west into negotiations or is it to use a handful in strategic locations to freeze the conflict right where it is and allow russia to hang on to the territory? That it currently has, or is it both of those things? Well, what
2: you've just suggested, Michael, and uh, this is at least what I also imagine, is that the U.S. administration uh, is preparing for any number of options. The, m- the most important thing is for the United States and the Western Alliance not to be surprised. First, that Putin might we might wake up one day and this be this is a terrible reality that we have to confront and make decisions how to handle number 2 is that clearly there there must be very intense wargaming going on tabletop exercise type things, we, we call it in the government, that would assess what would be the ways that Putin might decide to do this and and what would be our response accordingly. I don't think we should limit ourselves to thinking purely tactical nuclear weapons. It's almost unimaginable to think of the the other things. But we've been through at least one time in our history, we all every everyone alive and hopefully most students and others are aware of the Cuban missile crisis back in 1962 where the war, world was almost destroyed in a nuclear confrontation between the US and Russia and we shouldn't at least dismiss the possibility we, we may end up in a similar place today and as some experts that I really respect have recently written or stated and I agree with them we are at the highest point in nuclear risks than we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, 60 years ago.
0: Rolf, do you have a sense of how an order by Putin to use tactical nuclear weapons would be carried out, and the process, the number of people involved, then the possibility that someone along the way might say no you know, I'm not going to do this. It's very different, right, from strategic nuclear weapons, how that order would be carried out. Do you have a sense of how this works?
2: Only a very uh, vague sense, not from anything I could draw on and probably wouldn't be appropriate anyway from my time in intelligence, obviously. But I think what your listeners need to know about that is that the, the tactical nuclear weapons are an entirely different kind of challenge than strategic or we call thermonuclear warheads and uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and, and those types of things for which we have a very robust monitoring system. In this case, we're talking about very small weapons launched by missile launchers, some of which are in, in, the, in the general area of the, of the battlefield by airplanes dropped you know, fired by airplanes or or launched by submarines with very you know relatively small yields from you know say 5 kiloton lead yield to maybe 50 and and that would you know be very very small in comparison for example to any any other nuclear weapons we have in our strategic arsenals therefore you know they are limited and can be ordered relatively quickly down to the battlefield commanders who would launch them by the service involved the army navy and air force and all of those russian services have access potentially to receive the orders and to, to the weapons and then to receive the orders to potentially launch them. And I know that, the, uh, of course, the Western intelligence community is, is uh, very well aware of, of these things and monitoring it very, very closely, but it's still a very difficult challenge. And I think we would have to assess at the, at the outset of, of this a very low likelihood that someone along the chain of command might defy the order and refuse to carry it out. Which was part of the Cuban Missile Crisis story on on the famous Soviet submarine, but I don't think we can certainly count on that, and I think it would be very unlikely in the launch of,
0: say, one tactical nuclear weapon. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Ralph Moet Larson. Man,
1: that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill patio sunset. of our intelligence community, leadership, head of the agency, head of the, the DNI, have all said publicly that they've not seen any indication that Putin is preparing for the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And when I hear that, right, my reaction is, boy, that sounds like you think that you'll actually see those preparations. And you know that, that gives me pause. And I'm wondering how you react to that.
2: Well, I think we all would have pause and should have pause. And so my instinct is the same as yours, Michael. As a veteran intelligence officer, I always respect your instincts. And and so I, I concur. I think it also accompanies the gravity of the situation. Uh, the To imagine that seven months into a war we were hoping and expecting wouldn't maybe happen, or at least at this scale uh, that it's occurred, to suddenly be asking ourselves questions like the one you just posed is very scary. It's scary even for me. And I'm not going to say I'm confident that we either know would see the warning, the indicators and warnings. We used to call this foresight and early warning in the Cold War. And we got a lot away from it over the 30 30 years since the Cold War ended and now now suddenly we're we're in a situation where we're bringing that say art of intelligence back of analysis of collection of bringing those together to have the indicator. so i hope i hope we're totally on top of it as an intelligence community but of course i would have like any citizen a certain degree of fear about how prepared we are for this
0: so the other the other thing that we've heard from senior u.s officials and they've said this publicly is that they have made clear to the Russians what the consequences would be of the use of nuclear weapons and that those consequences would be severe, right? They haven't told us publicly exactly what they've said to the Russians, the specifics of it, right? Or they certainly haven't told us what they might do, but they haven't shared with the Russians, right? So I'm just wondering how you think about what our options would be if the russians use tactical nuclear weapons in ukraine what would be our strategic objective what kind of needle would we have to thread how do you think about that which i think is you know absolutely critical going forward here
2: yeah you hit you hit uh, on the top i think of uh, hit the nail on top of the most important question in this podcast today uh, not that you and i can answer it but we can at least give our readers some idea of how our Leaders are looking at it. I hope, and so the first thing I would say is their their ultimate challenge is to ensure that by our response, say for example, the Russians do escalate and use tactical nuclear weapon weapons, that we not raise the risk that it will there will be nuclear escalation that arises from that that could lead to obviously a world war or nuclear annihilation. That's the number one challenge, but ensure that whatever uh, response that the United States and its allies imposes on the Russians uh, ensures that Putin doesn't get away with nuclear back blackmail, which is essentially what he's doing. He's uh, trying to compensate for... Threatening to use these weapons, we hope it's just a threat. He's not really serious. But if he were to use it, obviously, that means he was serious. And we can't let him get away with it. So the range of responses, I would say, would be in three areas that the administration certainly has to work through and plan very carefully and consult with our allies. The first is a nuclear response. Uh, I think Putin needs to understand that that's on the table. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I, don't, I hope not, actually, but at least he has to know that that's the essence of deterrence, mutually assured destruction. The essence of that thought is that neither side can get away with using these weapons without retaliation, potentially in kind. The second range of uh, options all relate to some sort of a kinetic response that the U.S. would carry out with, again, hopefully support from other allies to impose a heavy military cost, maybe even decimate the Russian army in Ukraine. I'm not offering any of these, by the way, as my suggestions because I don't think that's appropriate. I'm just trying to say these options have to be considered to make the Russian army incapable, not only in Ukraine, but in the future to carry out wars of aggression. And then the third area is, of course, a, a combination of sanctions, economic price that the, further to pay, and a political price of some sort. Now, I have to say at this juncture that there could also be, of course, a combination of some of two and some of three. Uh, But whatever we do, I think it's the most important lesson from this, if it becomes a part of world history, that Russia is regarded as a pariah state if it escalates to nuclear weapons. In what everyone in the world knows, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, is an unjust war of aggression. So that the Chinese, the Indians, the erstwhile allies, if you will, and others of Russia and Putin understand that he went too far. He's losing a war, and his, his response to losing a war is to this unacceptable escalation that no country on Earth wants to see has become a precedent in the modern times. It was as Putin you know, Putin raised World War II and the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in his speech. I thought it was, frankly, disgusting. Of course, it's a tragedy that those two cities were destroyed. It didn't set a nuclear precedent. It ended a world war that had killed millions and millions of people conducted by fascists who were trying to take over the world with a holocaust and, a geno- and genocides within it over years and years of struggle, and it hastened the end of a war that, that seemed unending, and it was terrible nonetheless. What Putin's doing would be totally unavoidable, has no military rationale to justify it, no political basis to do it and so if he were to take the world into this plunge the world into this darkness Russia also descends Into this darkness along with everybody and it's a legacy that I think Putin and his successors will have to struggle for generations to overcome
0: So what I hear you say Rolf, I agree with you 100% is there has to be a significant enough response to show Putin and the rest of the world that there's a huge price to be paid from using such weapons and at the same time not responding with such force that we bring about you know, a thermonuclear war. So that seems to me to be the needle that the administration has to thread here if he were to use these weapons. And, boy, I wouldn't want to be the person to have to make that decision.
2: Yeah you've expressed you've summarized it perfectly Michael that's, that's exactly the the challenge and it's the uh, also the art of uh, of being a leader to to figure this out and and it's going to be a test for everybody including i would say Vladimir Putin because up to now he still does have the option to refrain from this what would be a senseless escalation there are other ways he can escalate he has other ways uh, to avoid being defeated, if you want to call it that in Ukraine. And this should be uh, something that's beyond the last resort, even for him.
0: Do you think, Rolf, do you think that we would see more rhetoric before he actually uses them? Or could we wake up tomorrow and be surprised?
2: Well, we can always wake up and be surprised, right, Michael? That's something we've experienced throughout our careers as intelligence officers and momentous events of world history, including 9-11 and the Arab Spring, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, of course, we can, and I don't want to attach a probability to it. I would just say, you know, there's there are going to be surprises in the next weeks and months. One thing we cannot afford to do, I think, is sh- shrink from our, I would call, duty as democratic, liberal, democratic governments to support Ukraine, to continue su- to supply them what they need to defend themselves, which is what they're doing. There is not a threat to NATO from NATO to Russia. There never was a military threat from NATO to Russia. Putin is, has concocted all of these threats in his mind to justify a war of aggression, because his autocracy is threatened by Western values, by Western, by Western. Uh, Liberal, liberal ideas of civil liberties and individual freedom and self-determination.
0: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. We're back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Our guest today is Rolf Larson, former senior CIA officer and now the William J. Perry Distinguished Fellow at the Nuclear Threat Initiative and a senior fellow at the Kennedy School of Government. So Rolf, it seems to me, just react to this, it seems to me that whatever we decide that we would do in response to the use of tactical nuclear weapons, we need to make sure that he knows that, right? Because We can't allow him to think that we won't respond, right? Because if he really believes that, then he'll be more likely to use them. Do you agree with that?
2: I do agree with it. I think uh, just as none of us should have any illusions that he's not serious— he should not have any illusions that we're not serious. I think the idea of mutual deterrence has to be reestablished. And we've got a little away from it in the sense we were so taken aback and surprised by Putin's, from the beginning, he has been making statements suggesting this might be somehow on the table. If you remember, in the first week or so of the war, he put his nuclear forces on high alert. And that shocked everyone, including me, that, that this would even be something that is in his sort of set of options. (laughs) And here we are talking today extensively about the rising risks. He might actually use it again. It boils down to his calculations as to what would be the outcome, whether he uses it or not, which would be the worst for him. That would mean challenging his, first of all, his grip on power, which he identifies as being an existential risk to Russia, whether he's in power or not. Now, that seems almost ludicrous to most anyone listening to it, that a person would think of himself as being somehow linked to the existential survival of a, of a powerful, historically significant state, country like Russia. But that's what he's identified himself as being in this war, which, of course, raises his his personal ambitions, his personal risks become somewhat synonymous with what he regards as risks to Russia.
0: So I want to put you on the spot here. How worried are you about the use of nuclear weapons by Putin?
2: Well, I'm very worried. Again, I, I think we started the war with a very small percentage, very, started the war with a very low probability, and I think we're at an unacceptably high probability. I, I would sort of maybe resist offering a percentage because I wouldn't have any any basis to right, say right. 50% 25% or but I think we're to, in a, in a place where the the planning has to be real the continued efforts to deter Russia from doing this have to be ongoing and continuous the messaging has to be extremely well thought through we can't we can't send out sloppy messages that would confuse him as to how he would respond he, one way or the other some Some people who I really respect are calling that maintain a sort of strategic ambiguity that leaves all our options on the table so that Putin would have to understand that that we might do anything but, to your point, the way you expressed it, he would have to know, he must know, and we must signal him to ensure he knows that it is not only unacceptable, it would result in such severe consequences that it won't be worth escalating to these weapons. Anything would be practically would be preferable to escalation because it does change the world. And it changes the world in, in unpredictable ways. Tremendous uncertainty would result not just in this war, but around the world. And most of all, it would really damage Russian interests and probably Putin's own rule if he were to take it to that level.
0: Yeah. Um, Ralph, I want to ask one more question on the nuclear issue. Um, and I know you know this quote, but JFK has a, a famous quote that he said, and, and that he saw as the key lesson learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that quote goes as follows, above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must advert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. Can you react to JFK's quote in terms of where we are today in Ukraine?
2: Oh, my reaction is uh, particularly, I would maybe say poignant this year because we're at the 60-year anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think we're just still still appreciating how strong Kennedy's leadership was and how his instinctive decision-making in a moment of crisis was, was so crucial in that affair. In other words, it's not just thinking it all through, having all the policy options on the table. It's your instinct. It's your your willingness to take it to the level where you know where your values sit, your principles sit in response to your adversaries and how you must respond to the situation. Having the appreciation, he could only take it so far, but he would win by doing that. And one thing that's interesting about the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, didn't last that long after the Soviet Union because even though he got a significant concession out of this out of the cuban missile crisis it, it contributed to his ultimate uh, ouster and I, I think in that way anyone who would calculate whether it's khrushchev putin uh, president biden others that that nuclear escalation is just another scale of destruction just another form of escalation doesn't appreciate the unique moral and ethical aspects of nuclear weapons that frankly don't exist for any others uh, you could possibly say biological weapons, of course. But nuclear weapons are alone in the moral, immoral quality of of using them. Uh, if you look at purely the effects of tactical nuclear weapons, they're not that asymmetric to extreme forms of conventional weapons. But it's the idea of the escalation that you're willing to essentially gamble the security of the entire planet, the globe, on the fact you can control the escalatory effects of starting off with one tactical nuclear weapon that somehow you can avoid escalation to, to where we, the entire world could be held hostage to a nuclear crisis again. That's really the stakes here, Michael the stakes of this escalation may sound just like another form of escalation Putin win lose but in fact it's it's th- that humanity itself is placed in in the scope the sniper scope of, of of this aggressive war and we that should be something the entire world works on to avoid meaning, Putin's allies, the people who can influence him with their support, whether it's Xi Jinping, even the United States, in making sure our communication on how he would respond is clear, is taken seriously, and unambiguous in terms of at least that it's serious. I mean, whether we specify or not is, is is a different matter. So that that's the way I see the Cuban missile crisis uh, as, as somehow related to this, this war. And as a very respected analyst has, has said to me, I'd prefer not to use his name in the in the discussion, is once a single nuclear weapon is used in the war, the risks of further escalation in nuclear become very real and palpable. And I think that's the problem we, we confront if, if this escalates in this fashion, in this war.
0: Rolf, let me ask you a couple of final questions here in the last couple of minutes we have. I want to ask about first about the attacks last week on both the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and the Nord Stream 2 pipelines. You know, NATO has formally blamed the Russians. What's the logic here for why the Russians would do this?
2: Well, I'll confess, I don't see a logic uh, for doing it. I've been discussing it with some colleagues and and, uh, analysts. Uh, As we enter the winter, the the energy war, weaponizing the weaponization of energy, is Putin's other option, set of options here. In other words, we go through the winter, and Putin's counting on—he's counted on it since he went into Ukraine in February—that by the time we reach the fall, the late fall, that the Western alliance, the European countries, who's have very restive. People Right now who, who don't want to make sacrifices of their own heating and, and, and energy use on behalf of Ukraine, perhaps are faced with very difficult decisions if they don't have access to Russian energy. So the idea the Russians would deliberately sabotage. Their capability to provide that, if the Europeans have a change of heart, I don't understand the logic of that. Even as a sort of desperate move, why, why do it now? So I'm not accepting, based on what I'm reading, that we understand what's going on with that sabotage. Uh, I'm I'm taking as face value that it is sabotage by someone, but I don't know. Who and I can't understand the logic of doing it. I'll, I'll make one more comment on the energy in the winter, which I think is very important. If the European alliance stays strong, if the Germans in particular who need Russian oil more than anyone, I, I think, um, Russian energy, I guess, over the winter, stay strong and wean themselves off Russian energy, Putin's in big trouble by the spring. Not only is he losing the war on the ground, he's going to begin to suffer far more economic consequences and, again, lose the ability to compel the Europeans to force Ukraine to accept negotiation, a negotiated settlement where they'd lose their territory. That's a key to Putin now. He's got to, someone has to help him force Ukraine to the negotiating table. That's where he sits right now as we speak. And if the U.S. won't do it, which he knows we won't, then it's up to the Europeans to put pressure on Ukraine. And so they need to hold hold the line with the United States against Putin in this war and not succumb to the energy temptation that would give him leverage over um, a negotiated settlement.
0: And one last question, Ralph. You know, we've been talking pretty much for the whole podcast about, you know, worst case outcomes. Yeah. Um, give us the alternative. What's the best case here going forward?
2: I still think there is a, a better case, uh, certainly a best case, uh, would would be uh, for Vladimir Putin to realize that he started this war, he has the ability to end it. Uh, I think what could be part of that would be a, an ability to extract something from the Ukrainians and the, and the West that would give him enough of a face-saving way out that uh, he could... He could settle. Uh, I think he still has maneuver room. I'm not sure exactly what the outlines of that looks right now. I hear too many people talking about, you know, what would be the least the Ukrainians can accept. I th- I think a lot of our effort needs to be put into mm. finding a way for Russia, and, and in particular, out of this without escalation, and frankly, without keeping those four regions that they've annexed? Because I think that was a political mistake by Putin that he made out of desperation, meaning he's boxing himself in further now. How does he withdraw from that position that they'll never be part of Ukraine again? So I think that's where we are at the end of this. I think there's time and there's space to work out something better than these many grim options. And I, I do want to say at this point, Michael, because you know me very well, and I I have a habitual a tendency to focus on the really, really bad things, which is I guess <laughs> what I did when I was in the weapons of mass destruction of yeah, a yeah. counterterrorism center and I, in my old days living in the Soviet Union and worried about nuclear war. And now, you know, at NTI, we are worried about all the nuclear parts of this. And I, I have to clear my own head. And the way I do it is remember there's a big, exciting world out there. And there are many options other than the worst options we're laying out for our, your listeners.
0: Rolf, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Great, great conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Rolf Moet Larson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinsky, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail.